Founders face mentors and masters. I'm Captain Hawk, CEO of Founderspace, the leading global startup accelerator. I'm also author of the award-winning books, Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Horses. Today, I am here with Jose Palomino, the CEO of Value Prop. Jose, welcome to the show. Well, Stephen, glad to be here. I understand that you are an expert on systematizing marketing and sales processes for B2B companies. And I want you to tell us a little about your background. Sure. So I came to this place after about what had been a 20-year career arc in mostly sales and marketing, mostly in high-tech companies. And I realized, I started observing very closely that there was a gap between the formulation of strategy, marketing, and sales. They were kept in very separate categories. But as you move more into the middle market and owner-led businesses, you know, the owner had to figure all three of those things out. And there really wasn't a lot that brought those things together. So that became the birth of Value Prop. Value Prop interacted the firm and the book I wrote, Value Prop, because I realized it came down to figuring out how to help companies put their finger on their greatest value to their best customers. And so we built the practice over the last 15 years, been working with hundreds of owners and business leaders uh, to create real growth based on those principles that were anchored in the career I had prior to that. So let's talk about those principles and let's discuss the deep insights that you have come to doing this. And it's interesting, uh, framing it as a deep insight, but it is. And it's this, uh, when I did my, my MBA program, right as I was starting the business, it was based on a principle called systems thinking, right? So the idea that every organization is really a system. And that thought definitely wasn't finding its way into the idea of revenue generation, of growth, anything. People looked at that, that's a sales issue, or that's a marketing issue, or maybe it's a product issue. And what I really want any leader to really grasp, it's a systems issue. Because, for example, you have a great product, you have great salespeople, you have great lead generation, but your customer service is uh, not so good. So what ends up happening is customers don't actually want to do business with you because they don't like the experience of it. So you got them into the tent, so to speak, but they come out the other side. Well, you're not going to grow very big or very fast that way. So that's something that they don't often think about, just like, how's that? The other one is you make promises that your marketing team told you. Make these promises. The market really wants these things. And they haven't really looked at your delivery organization. Like, can we can we cash that check, you know, once we write it and make those promises? Things like quality, things like timely delivery, all those things. So we really challenge leaders. And I personally want leaders of any kind of size enterprise, whether it's a startup or all the way to like a billion dollar company. Take a look at your business more holistically. It's a system. And that entire system has to work well for you to convert, especially in B2B, for you to convert opportunities into actual revenue. And if you don't look at it systematically, what's going to happen is you're going to, it's going to be like a boat that looks great, but is leaking everywhere. And you're thinking, why aren't we picking up speed? Why aren't we going as fast as we should be going? Or even worse, why are we like, oh boy, we're taking on water. What's happening? It's because you're leaking opportunities 
through areas that are not obvious. Everyone knows, let's check a look at our Google Analytics. How are we doing on rankings? Those are obvious things, but it's the non-obvious things where you actually deal with real customers that will affect the future of your business. Give us some concrete examples, some stories that you've experienced with your customers that have really transformed their business. I mean, there's so many, but I'll pick one that I, I, I like to tell because I think it's a really clear picture of this principle. This company was a, a oil delivery company, heating oil, right? So that's a very, I mean, talk about a commodity business. That's a total commodity business. It's literally heating oil number two. It's, it's the category, it's traded on the global markets. No heating oil delivery company buys the oil for less than any other. Literal commodity. And what they all have to do is they go to a homeowner who's buying oil from them, and they put the nozzle in, and they have to listen for the whistle when they fill the tank, 285 gallons. It's about $4 a gallon, so a full tank load could be 1500 bucks. That's what's at stake here. However, there's an existential threat to heating oil, which is simply this. People are converting from oil to gas, and all new construction is gas, never oil. So if you're in that market, you're in a tough spot. You're like in a shrinking market. So what do you do? So I had a client that asked me that exact question, and we went through the usual, can you make the oil any better? Can you do this or that? None of that was possible. He said, well, then the, real, the reality is we need to stay vibrant long enough so we can move into other markets, which they have successfully done over the years. So that's a real good turnaround story. But how did they do it? Well, it came out of taking a look top to bottom, a systems view of their business. It turned out that they had actually commissioned some years prior a better software algorithm to predict when people needed their delivery to take place. Because there's no, there's no meter, there's no Wi-Fi calling for oil. It's like they actually do what are called weather days. That's how the whole industry works. And they figure out when Mr. Hoffman is going to need oil. Right. And they try not to miss it because if they miss it, your house gets very cold in the winter. Right. Well, they did this special algorithm to save money on overtime and to save money on last minute runs. So I asked them, how accurate is it? And they said, well, last year we did 60,000 deliveries and we only missed on nine. That's ninety nine point nine nine nine. So I said, does anyone else have this? No. I said, well, does, do your customers know you have this? No, not really. So I said, let's tell them. So we create the uh, never run out or the no run out guarantee. If we let you run out, we'll actually fill the tank, the whole tank, 285 gallons at our expense, right? That's a big guarantee. That's a guarantee with teeth. Well, what that ended up doing is it attracted, even though the market was shrinking, it attracted the higher end of the market that didn't want to leave that to chance. And they were the only ones that made this guarantee. And as a result, they enjoyed roughly about a 60% greater gross margin per gallon than any of their competitors, which helped fuel the turnaround of the company in other markets, in other area, other services they could provide. So that's a case of looking at your business holistically, seeing maybe something you're doing operationally that's actually good for you internally, but then asking the question, are these things also good for our customers? And if they are, and you tell your customers about these operational, like superior things you're doing, then it actually actually makes your value prop that much more robust, much more attractive. And chances are, like this exact uh, company, you will enjoy greater margins than your competitors. And man, if you can get more margin, if you can make more money per sale than your competitors, that gives you working capital, that gives you, you know, bragging rights, it gives you growth, and it gives you fuel. 
even in this case, a declining market, they couldn't stop that decline. Mm -hmm. That's a global issue, right? But even in a declining market, they were able to enjoy more profitability from that declining market uh, than any of their competitors. That's amazing. That's a great story. And you know what's interesting about it? They didn't see it and they're in the company. Like because they're so deep in their own company, they're kind of blind to their own value that they're providing and what that could mean in a bigger context. So it took somebody from the outside like you to come in there, look at all the different pieces and say, hey, you know, and this, I see this happening, you know, in many, many companies. They are actually creating enormous value or have potential to do it, but they just don't see it because they're in the woods. They can't see it. They can't get back. Yeah. And I think that's true. I mean, like this, during this whole pandemic, I got like many other people, I bought a set of clippers and I did my own haircut. So just about three weeks ago, I finally went, I said, for the first time in almost two years, I actually went to a great clips to get my haircut. And I said, you got to fix it because I'm not that good at it. But I did the best I could, you know, with limited, no training, limited skills. And thankfully, my hair's not that long, so I could get away with it. Uh, good enough for Zoom, you know. But it's just the same principle. Like, I can't see the back of my head, you know, not without some crazy mirrors or something. I'd rather the professional in 10, 15 minutes do a much better job than I could do on my own. Honestly, I don't have that problem because I don't have much hair. So <laughs> I just shave it all off. <laughs> now, now, let's talk in your life and the business you've done, what has been the biggest challenge you faced and how did you overcome it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's a, a couple, but one immediately uh, comes to mind. So when I started out in business, I started out on Wall Street in operations, moved into IT related roles, ended up working for uh, Tandem Computers, which at the time was a Fortune 200 company, moved into sales there, had all this career success, but I had a monkey on my back, which is I never went to college. So I had not gone to college and I said, wow, well, that's a, somehow, you know, you had to perform if you performed. And, and thankfully I work for people that they value the performance, but it always was a little bit of a moment. If people were talking about their college experience and all of a sudden I, you know, I had to like, uh, oh, let me go get the beers for everybody, you know, change the subject <laughs> or something. It was an awkward moment. So I was talking about this with a good friend of mine. Uh, this is probably 2005, 2006. And I just mentioned it casually. It had come up in a lunch meeting. And he said, Jose, well, why don't you go get your MBA? And I said, David, you know, what part of I never went to college didn't, didn't I make clear? And he says, well, <laughs> yeah. But I, and then he said this, and this was actually one of the most powerful, probably the one, one A, one B pieces of advice I ever got in my life. And he formed it in a question that really struck me, hit me in the heart. And he said, have you asked? Think about that, Stephen. Have mm. you asked? I said, oh, well, uh, and I looked down and I said, okay, well, no, not really. <laughs> so I called, I called uh, Drexel University. I called um, uh, Kellogg, mm -hmm. Wharton, Villanova, and I think one other school. And I just said, would you consider a non-standard uh, applicant for your executive MBA program? And all of them, to my great surprise, said, well, let's talk about it. And then Villanova said, can you come in and meet, see us today? And so because they and, and then uh, the gentleman, uh, Doug Dick, was a wonderful man. I, I will always be uh, in, in his debt. He said to me, you know, we have mostly these corporate sponsored people here. Right. But we don't have an entrepreneur. And I'd already started my firm and we'd love for you to be part of the program. Mm -hmm. So I am actually a high school graduate with an advanced degree. And I actually teach at Villanova in the MBA program and have done so for the last 10 years. That is a fantastic story. 
And there's a really strong lesson in there. And that is, have you asked? Like we all assume things like, I can't do this. Like it's possible. I'll never, because we just don't ask. Your friend was right. You know, you're already a smart guy, right? You've proven that you're successful at business and stuff. But you know, in society, we judge people by these degrees and there's an insecurity there. Like I didn't have an MBA and I went into business, you know, I had an electrical engineering degree, I had a master's in film and television, but I didn't have an MBA. I never got an MBA, but I know the feeling, right? Because there's all these MBAs, you know, around me and they're like, you know, they all have it. And I'm like, what am I missing? You know, maybe I, I'm not up to their level. Ironically, I teach business now and start. it just didn't matter. But I tell you, it does help socially and it does help psychologically. You know, those degrees make a difference and you learn something. From everybody I talk to, when they get an MBA degree, like an executive MBA, it's also the network. Like you get plugged in. Clearly open doors for me. And uh, one of the great privileges I, I just would not have had, it was just the opportunity to teach. I developed my own courses there and I teach at that level and I love it. Honestly, the best teachers are the doers, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship and things like that. So let's get on to our next question. And that industry has myths, things you've encountered and that you kind of poked a hole in. I work primarily with people in industrial categories, right? They either OEM or they they do contract manufacturing, they provide industrial services. And what I've always run into, and I it literally takes me a while to push back against it, is when they look to hire sales talent, they overweigh product and industry knowledge in the equation. So they end up really what would have been in, in my software sales world uh, past would have been a sales engineer, somebody supporting sales, but not the primary driver of the sales process. But they really weigh, they, they'll say, well, Larry has 20 years experience. He really knows the, oh, you should see him talk, walk through the manufacturing plan. He knows, he could do the job of the guys making the stuff. And I said, yes, but can he sell? Like, does he understand the human dynamics of what selling today is about? especially as more and more it's a buyer's journey, not a seller's journey. Uh, do they know any of those things? And they don't. So they, the, the big myth is we need somebody with super technical domain expertise to sell. Now, I, I do believe if you sell a product, you should learn the product. But you can learn the product. I mean, you don't have, as long as you're not being tasked to engineer the product, you can learn the product. And I know just because of the number of industries I've worked in, and worked for and supported clients, I learned pretty quickly, um, you know, and again, that's my skill set, but I'd say, okay, in two weeks time, I could sell this product, you know, just because I have the sales acumen, right? So I said, that's what you need to look for. Somebody who can sell, yes, learn the product, learn the, pl the uh, pluses, the strengths and weaknesses, learn the comp uh, competitive matrix, all of those things you have to learn. That may take three months, four months, six months. But I've actually had owners tell me, look, It'll take at least three years for this person to be able to sell our product. And I won't even tell you because I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody, but the, but the product was basically a very commodity service. I'm thinking like, well, I don't think so. Not really. Um, because salesmanship, the real skill, I don't, I don't mean the, the stereotypical like uh, Glengarry, Glenn Ross type of person. I mean, but a true sales professional is a problem solver, is a listener, is going to connect the dots. It's going to have personal credibility. So, Stephen, if you ask me a question about my Razzlestat 9000 machine and I don't have an answer, and I say, Stephen, that's a great question. Let me make sure I got that right because I honestly don't have the answer to that question. But I'm going to get you that answer this afternoon. 
just let me make sure I captured it correctly. And then you tell me again what the question is. I say, okay, what else would you like to know? And there's probably other things I, I get back into the, 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 the flow of things. It's not rocket surgery, right? It can be done. But again, the myth is I need to hire somebody who could make the machine to sell the machine. And that is just not true. In fact, it actually, it could be a big negative because they know so much, they end up trying to problem solve at the engineering level and they don't sell. They're not productive. They're not making phone calls. They're not following up. And they say, well, gee, they can make a $10,000 bonus if they hit their numbers. They're not even that money motivated beyond, beyond a certain level. And I do believe top salespeople have an eye on the prize. I mean, that's why they chose that career. I couldn't agree more. I know for a fact that when people make buying decisions, they aren't making it on the technical details. When they are making buying decisions, they are looking for, like you said, solutions, right? What can this do for me in my business? And the technical details, yeah, they'll want to check those now and then, but that isn't the driving factor. And a lot of these technical people, they, they know so much in the details when they're trying to sell, they get lost in them. Like they're over explaining the technical side and not exactly. listening to the problems the customer is having. So they, there's a big gap there. You hit an, the nail on the head. Now, for my final question, I'd like to ask, what is the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received? I've been really blessed with a number of mentors throughout my life. So I've had people that have really come alongside me and I've tried to pay it forward. I can have some of these, uh, these gentlemen are gone now from, from, this, uh, from, from the earth at this point. May they rest in peace. But they were just very kind. But I think one of them that comes to mind who had a lot uh, to do with my career development he said, decide who you're going to be, not what you're going to do. That that's the real decision. What kind of person you want to be. And that has really helped me decide a lot of other things. So like just how you, who are you going to be in the, in the world? So I, I would say to anybody listening, I think that's such a critical question because it decides, you know, it doesn't mean that you need to have a whole like a book of code of ethics or a whole guideline. It's just saying like, who do you want to be in this world? So when you're in this situation, if you're selling, I've been in situations selling where if I said something that wasn't quite true, it might have helped me, but that's not who I want to be in the world. So that guides that simple thought. Or if I have an employee that, you know, candidly disappointed me on something, maybe dropped the ball in a way that cost us, I could go berate them, yell at them and say, but I don't want to be that person. So who I am in the world determines how I approach what I do. And I think that was the best advice I could have ever gotten. I got that young and it helped shape my thinking uh, throughout my life. That is great advice. It truly is. It makes you really think. Uh, every young person in college should be told that. Who do you want to be? That's what it comes down to. So Jose, it has been wonderful having you on the show. You've given some fantastic advice and really deep heartfelt advice from your life. Now, please tell us where people can find you. Sure. Certainly, I can be found on LinkedIn. Right? So if you put in Jose Palomino, you'll find me pretty easily. My corporate website, which has my bio, has my podcast, my blog, access to my books, everything. It's kind of like the nerve center. Is valueprop.com, and it's V-A-L-U-E-P-R-O-P.com, valueprop.com. And uh, be happy to interact with, uh, help in any way I can. People can reach out through those various mechanisms on that site, how to get a hold of me. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. You can help us create more great content by subscribing and sharing.
Also, if you want to access our online startup program, our investor network, and our entrepreneur resources, just come to founderspace.com.